0: To, um, uh, to serve the deaf community. So if you see some things going on a little different, that's what's uh, going on. a variety of ministries we have going on at the church. Uh, we encourage, we want to encourage us as a church. We want to be faithful, and uh, that faithfulness uh, flows out in lots of different areas. The kids are taking the cue. It is time for the kids to be dismissed to Children's Church. I appreciate their uh, initiative to get up and out when it's time to go. Uh, for the rest of us, let's open our Bibles together to the book of Mark. Uh, This morning we are in Mark chapter 12. Um, If you don't have a Bible this morning, there is one in a pew Bible close to you. Um, The passage we are in this morning is on page 848 in a pew Bible. Page 848, Mark chapter 12, verses 8 to 13 um, is our text. Well, this morning, I've titled this morning's text, text, our message this morning. I've called it a theology test. Uh, Last week we talked about a tax text. Test based on our text. That's a lot of words to say. Text test text. Anyway, last week it was a text test. This week is a theology test. And what's happening in our context is Jesus is being asked lots of questions. And this morning the question he is being asked has to do with the be do with marriage, but particularly the idea of resurrection. As we think about marriage, they, we recognize that wedding vows are things that we uh, say at weddings. What are our wedding vows we say for better or for Worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. And then we say at the end, till death do we part, right? So that's this big idea, that till death do us part. And when we get married, we realize that we are enter- entering into a sanctifying relationship, a relationship that causes us to grow and change. And it's growing and changing throughout our lifetime. But in the vows, we say until death. Do us part. And this morning, the question we want to wrestle with and that they're wrestling with with Jesus is so, what happens at death? What about marriage and the resurrection? Are we married in heaven? How does the resurrection input that? Uh, what happens in terms of that? And so, this morning, we're going to look at that. And uh, so, Jesus is talking about the resurrection. And so, he has a group of people that are coming to him. And we're going to see that this morning that marriage is a test case for our understanding of three things. As Jesus responds, it's a test case for our understanding of the resurrection, our understanding of the word of God, and an understanding of the power of God. So those are the three things that the resurrection is all pointing us to. Well, let's look at our text together. Mark chapter 12 verse 18 begins. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, a man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And likewise the third and the seven left no offspring, and last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so, in our context, we see this group of religious leaders. A group of religious leaders, these authorities, are coming to Jesus. And they're coming to Jesus to put him to the test. A couple of weeks ago, we, looked, we saw another group. And look back in your passage with me to chapter 11, verse 27. And it talks about these three groups that came to Jesus before. It says, and they came to him to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? And so we have three groups. We have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They came asking questions about authority. In chapter 12, verse 13, we see two more groups. In verse 13 it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So we have the chief priests. The scribes, the elders, and then later on came the Pharisees and the Herodians. And all of these are different power groups within the nation of Israel at the time. And they all came trying to trap Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus was teaching. They were opposed to all the things that he was doing. And so now this morning we have a new group introduced to us called, in verse 18, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are a distinct group. This group of Sadducees, that they are a group of religious leaders similar to the Pharisees. They had power, they had authority, but this group, there are more Pharisees than there are Sadducees, so there aren't very many of the Sadducees, but this group had greater influence. While there weren't as many as there are Pharisees, they had more influence, and the influence is because they were very well-connected, they were very wealthy, and they came from a very priestly line. And so they were connected very well, connected with their family, connected with their wealth, connected with their influence. And they, they, they had this group, therefore, had a significant role on what's called the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish Supreme Court. And so they're at work in all of this. And as we begin to understand, well, what did the Sadducees believe that made them distinct from these other groups? And one of the things that history would tell us is that the Sadducees, they only believed that the first five books of our Old Testament are, belong, are from God. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the only five books that they thought were a part of God's Word. And because of that, there are some wrong teaching that they believed. There are some things that they did not buy into because of that. And we actually have that recorded for us in the book of Acts. And if you'll turn to the book of Acts with me, turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, we're going to look in chapter 23, and we have a very short sentence that describes to us some things that were distinct about the Sadducees and made them different than the Pharisees. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 932, page 932, and it's Acts chapter 23, Acts 23, 8. And this is Paul the Apostle. He's before this Jewish Sanhedrin and all these people, this high the uh, high court there in Jerusalem. And it says this in verse eight: For the Sadducees, okay, there's our group. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so, as we look at who this group is and what do they believe, what don't they believe in? They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe that there are angels. They don't believe that there is a spirit world. And the Pharisees believe all of that. And so as we could summarize, just a, a memory aid to help you to remember who are the Sadducees and who are the Pharisees. If we would look at the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't uh, believe in these other books of the Bible. What we could say about their theology is that their the- theology is sad, you see. Okay, an easy way to remember the Sadducees. Their theology is sad, you see. Now, the Pharisees, at the end of this verse, says the Pharisees believe all these things. They take the rest of the Old Testament, they believe in a resurrection, they believe in spirits, they believe uh, those things, and so their theology is fair, you see. All right, okay, so an easy way to remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Pharisees had good theology. They didn't apply it well, but they had good theology. The Sadducees had sad theology. Theirs wasn't good. Okay, So this is the group that comes to Jesus. Now, back in chapter 12, they come to Jesus, and we're told in verse 18 of chapter 12, who say that these Sadducees, they say there is no resurrection. Okay, So we pick it up here again. They don't believe in a resurrection. And so they ask Jesus a question. And what they do in this is that they are presenting a theoretical situation to make a theological point. This theoretical situation, this this, this what-if scenario. And the what-if scenario is based on what Deuteronomy chapter 25 taught, one of the books of the Bible they would have accepted, that it taught that if in this Jewish nation, because they were going into a foreign land, that their goal was to keep their nation pure. They wanted to be pure in terms of their Jewishness, pure in terms of their religion. They wanted to be pure. And so the part of the, a part of doing that is maintaining your family's name. And so it taught, they taught that if a couple are married and the husband dies and they don't have any kids, that the widow is to marry the, her brother-in-law. Okay? And that would keep the family going. And they were to have kids, and then the family name would go on. And so... The Sadducees, they don't believe in this whole resurrection thing anyway. They don't buy it anyway. So they propose this theoretical situation, all right? They said, okay, Jesus, if this resurrection, because Jesus taught about the resurrection, if this resurrection is true, what about this? So there's this guy, he gets married, they don't have kids, he dies. She marries her brother, they get married, they, ha- they don't have any kids, he dies. She, he, he, the next brother marries him. next brother marries him. They don't have any kids. He dies. What happens next? Well, there's another brother. Marries another one. They don't have any kids. He dies. And so they're good in this hypothetical situation. And there's seven brothers all married to this woman. And then finally it tells us in our passage that finally the widow dies. So, Jesus, and we can almost hear them almost like, all right, smart guy, figure this out. Give us the answer to this. When they all, in this resurrection that we think is foolish, but that you believe in, if that resurrection is true, whose husband, whose wife is she? How does that work? And, and so it's like, well, that's a really good theological question, because how does that work? Because would it be the first? Well, why would the first get privileged? Because all the others were married to her as well. None of them had kids, so how could you discern one or over the other? Or maybe they, you can almost hear them saying, "Well, so what is there? Like some kind of celestial polygamy that goes on, and so she's married to all seven of them." I mean, how do you how do you pick? And you can almost imagine the Pharisees at this or the Sadducees at this point, kind of sitting back, their arms folded, and they're just like, "All right, gotcha," right, and in a very smug way. And as they have this smug expression on their face and the nature of the question that they're asking we realize they're not asking this question to learn they're asking a question to make a point point. and the point they want to make is this whole belief in a resurrection is foolishness and so they ask jesus this question and watch jesus's response verse 24 is this not the reason you are what's the word wrong okay jesus doesn't play with the games with them he doesn't go along with it he says to them is this not the reason you are wrong and he says to them because you neither you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god that's a rather bold statement to a bunch of religious leaders who have authority He's saying, listen, you guys, if you are asking this question, it is clear you don't understand the Scriptures, and you not only don't understand the Scriptures, you don't understand the power of God. And we see Jesus confidently confronting the errors of these opponents. He is pushing back on them, and he tells them they're wrong. And then we think about, how do you suppose that went over? Being told you are wrong, and you're not only wrong, but you don't read the scriptures right, and you don't even understand the power of God. I'm guessing it went over about as well as it would today if we're told we're wrong. I mean, how many of you like to be told you're wrong? I mean, forget hearing. Where, I mean, some of you are like, well, I'm not sure how that feels because I've never. I might try that someday. Some of you just looked at your spouse and said, "What's that? I don't know, honey. What's that like?" Right. But we realize that this idea that Jesus isn't playing this game with them. Because Jesus doesn't say what might be said in our culture, well, listen, you Sadducees, that's your truth. Let me tell you my truth. And the Pharisees have their truth, and the chief priests have their truth. Everybody just kind of has their truth, and we'll all just everybody have their truth, and we'll all just get along. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say that because there's not your truth, my truth, their truth. There's only one truth, and it's a truth that corresponds with reality. It's a, it's a truth that, that matches up to what is real and what is right. And so we understand if there is right and if there is truth, then there are things that are wrong. And the idea of telling somebody that they're wrong was no more popular in that day as it is in our day. Nobody wants to be wrong. And so Jesus confronts them, though, and he tells them clearly that you are wrong. He's not playing games with them. And so what does he do? He not only tells them they're wrong, but he also then he begins to teach them truth. It's One of the gracious things we see about Jesus, he points out error, but then he seeks to correct it. He seeks to correct the error, to teach them what is true. Why? Because that's who he is. He's a teacher. He is the eternal Son of God that has taken on flesh. He has come to make known to us truth, to reveal to us the invisible God. He has come to make known the truth of God, and so he corrects these errors. And how does he do that? Well, he begins in verse 25, and he begins with the idea of the resurrection. He says, For when they rise from the dead... What, what is, so the Sadducees don't believe people rise from the dead. What is Jesus saying? People are going to rise from the dead. You guys are wrong. There is a resurrection. For when they rise from the dead, which they will, he says, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. And what he says is, your assumption that there's marriage in heaven is wrong. Because there's not marriage in heaven. You see, Jesus in this is correcting their misunderstanding of the resurrection life. They see the resurrection life as, it's like this life just continued into the next. And so the things that we have in this life and the way everything is now is like it is then, it just goes on for eternity. But when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it is not simply talking about a new quantity of life a new amount of life that goes on forever and ever. It certainly means that's a part of it, but it's more than that. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it is a quality of life. It is is new, it is unique, it is different. And this quality of life that we're going to have in the next is different than this life. Now there are connections, there's what we'd call continuity, so we'll have bodies here, we will have bodies in heaven, we have an earth now, there will be a new earth in, the, in eternity, but we recognize that there are distinctions. Now keep your place here, and let's turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians, because in 1 Corinthians we see this truth about the resurrection, and we learn some things about how it's, what we're, our bodies are things are like now, but it's different. 1 Corinthians 15, this is on page 961 in your pew Bible. It will begin in verse 35. And in this context, there's questions about the resurrection again. Is the resurrection really true? Does it really happen? And the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Great question. And he says this. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so this new life comes after death. So there's life after death. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. A bare kernel. He says, he says perhaps, of wheat or some other grain. And so he's using a very common agriculture example. If you have a, 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 a seed corn... Okay, a corn seed, and you put it in the ground. Does what come out of the ground look like what went into the ground? No, it's different. And what he's saying is the body that goes into the grave is like the seed. What comes out of the grave is different, is distinct. He goes on in verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, to each a kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another of birds, and another of fish. Okay, right? I mean, we recognize different kinds of flesh. I mean, fish taste different than chicken, right? And, and, but he says, and so there are different bodies, but he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So we have bodies that are like this one, and the heavenly bodies are different. But the glory of the heavy, heavenly one is of a, one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. And he's saying, so is, is, there's physical bodies are different, stars are different, suns are different, bodies are different. Bodies are different now than they will be in eternity. And he says that in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that's our physical body, is perishable. And what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so what Paul is teaching us is also what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus is teaching us this in this future life, the resurrection life, there are things similar, but it's going to be different. Okay, so we continuity and discontinuity. So, back to chapter 12 of Mark. Back to chapter 12 of Mark. What is Jesus saying to them? He says, whenever we die, we look at verse, verse 25. It says, for when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage. So things are different. There's not marriage in eternity. And it says, but we are like the angels in heaven. And when it describes this, it says we are like the angels in heaven. One of the things that I just want to to say clearly, it says we are like the angels. It does not say we become angels. I'm I'm amazed at how often I hear that at funerals from people who are believers. Listen, when we die, we don't become angels. When we die, we still get to be us. God doesn't get a new angel when somebody dies. God gets that person if they're a believer in a glorified way right it's even better than an angel so when you hear that i would you know don't say it at the funeral because that's a bad time but the recognize that there is a recognition that we don't become angels but it says we're like the angels well how are we like the angels well angels are spirit beings they don't die angels don't die angels don't die because they're numbers they don't need to procreate they don't angels don't have baby angels and so when we think about Marriage, what is one of the primary purposes of marriage? It is certainly companionship, but it is also procreation. Go and fill the earth, right? And so in heaven, when we, in eternity, we realize that heaven is filled with people that have repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As they receive resurrection bodies, the Revelation 7 tells us that there's a multitude that no one could count. From every tribe and nation, tribe and language, standing before the throne of God, multitudes of people, more than we can count, and none of those people are ever going to die, so none of them have to be replaced. So what we understand then is that in, in eternity, marriage does not have sexual significance. And Jesus says, we're like the angels. There's not marriage, there's not giving in marriage, that marriage does not have sexual significance in heaven. And as we understand that, what Jesus is telling us is that there is no marriage in heaven. Now, I want to give comfort to those who've lost a spouse. Because those who've lost spouses, you long to be with your spouse. You long for that. And I would encourage, I, as we would look at what the scriptures teach us, while there is no marriage in heaven, what we would also say that when we move from this life into the next, there is no nothing less in the next life than there is in this life what i mean by that is the satisfaction that you have had as a married person in this life just because you're not married in heaven doesn't mean the relationship won't be as much as satisfying what it means is that all your other relationships are going to be elevated as well so what I want you to hear me, don't, is you're hearing, well, there's no marriage in heaven. Well, I can't imagine heaven without marriage because I love my spouse so much, and now they're gone, it's not going to be any less. You, you won't love them any less, and they won't love you any less. Because when we get to heaven, there's no less. It's all more. Because what do we have here? Sin. And as wonderful as your relationship with your spouse is here in eternity, it's going to be with no sin. How glorious is that? And so as Jesus is correcting them here, and as we hear there's no marriage in heaven, it's not a downer, it's just reality. And Jesus is saying, when you think of eternity, you need to think better and better, better than this life in every way that you can imagine. So Jesus tells them. So the first thing he confronts them with, he says, you guys don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. They don't know the scriptures because they're denying this resurrection. They don't know the power because they're denying the resurrection. Well, Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, and as for the dead being raised. So Jesus is addressing two issues, the issue of marriage and the issue of resurrection. And he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Just pause there. Do you think that's a rather offensive statement to them? You know, have you not even read your Bible? I mean, you're a religious teacher. You're a religious leader. Have you not read your Bible? Give me a break, right? Have you not read, and he goes on, have you not read the book of Moses? And so that would have been Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote all of those books. Have you not read about the, the passage about the bush And how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Have you not read that? And they would have thought, of course we've read that. Of course we read that. I mean, that's in the second book of the Bible. It's Exodus. It's about God calling Moses to go lead the people out of, out of Egypt. That is a significant passage and understanding for us because that's who we believe God is. He is a delivering God. He rescues sinners. He rescues people out of slavery. That's who we believe our God is. And Jesus says to him, you guys aren't reading your Bible well. He says, you're not reading your Bible well. And so Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. He says this. He says, have you not read? It says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so he builds his argument on the resurrection, and Jesus, he could have looked in other places in the Old Testament to talk about this resurrection. He could have looked in Isaiah 26 and pointed him there, where Isaiah 26:19 says, Your dead shall live, and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Clearly teaching about a resurrection. Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, and others to everlasting contempt. He could have looked at there. Daniel could have looked at Isaiah. But why doesn't he use Isaiah and Daniel? They don't believe it. They don't buy it. So what does Jesus go? He goes to a text that they would believe. And what does he argue? Look, in verse verse 26, he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And now, when I use am, back to grammar school, right, am is a form of is. Okay? Is am past, present, or future tense? I am. Present tense. If I was talking past tense, I would say I was. If I'm saying future tense, it would be I will be. What did... God say to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are three guys that have been dead for a really long time. So did God get his grammar wrong? Did God say, oh, I guess I guess I should have said I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they're all dead. I misspoke. No. God meant exactly what he meant. God meant exactly what he said. I am the God. Why? Because verse 27 says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What does that indicate? That there is life after life. Life after death. That though we die, these people who believe the promises of God, that they are still alive. They're people who are with God. He is their God now. And so Jesus builds his whole argument on the resurrection on the form of a verb. That's important. Okay? It's important for us for two reasons. One reason is because this is a true doctrine, the resurrection is true. Second is it tells us we need to read our Bibles very carefully. Very carefully. Paying attention to verb forms, am versus was versus will be. Those have theological significance. That we need to be good students of the Bible. We believe that the Bible is inspired, that it's the very breath of God. We believe that the Bible is inerrant because it comes from God. It contains no errors. We believe that God's word is sufficient, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We believe that God's word is necessary that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We believe that God's word is authoritative. And because of those things, as we would look at this Bible, we realize that it has authority and how it says things and the way it says things matters. And we don't get to stand in judgment over the Bible and say, well, I like that part, I don't like that part. I believe this, I don't believe that. If that's the case, that this, then we are God. I'm making myself a God. I'm elevating myself as an authority above the Bible. But as we shared a few weeks ago, that our rightful place, if all of those things are true of the Bible, our rightful place is to be underneath the authority of the Bible. That we submit our whole lives to Him. To all the words that He has declared. And we don't put it here and just compromise. Well, I know God says this, but I'm going to do this. Now that we live under the authority of of God's word. And so God, in the midst of this, he is correcting their misguided views. He's their misguided view of God's power because that's what he says in this, that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, he is the God of the living and not of the dead. And Jesus demonstrates to them that he is, that he has resurrection power, that he is a supernatural God. And so in our passage, we're seeing that this theology test that we are being given in this, that they put Jesus to the test with this theoretical question, that Jesus confronts their errors and, and, and he makes the point to them that they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And as we look at this passage this morning, there are really two questions that we need to be asking ourselves as we would think of a theology test. And the first question that we would ask ourselves is, do you know the Word of God? You know it by reading it. Are you reading the Word of God? I'm burdened because I'm... Oftentimes we interact around the Word of God and talk to people about what's going on in their spiritual lives and talk to somebody who's been a believer for lots of years and there is an anemic understanding of the Scriptures. Anemic understanding, which means... That they have a cursory view understanding, but they don't get they they're lost when it comes to understanding the Bible. What's where, how things fit together, who's who. They're just oblivious to that. And what burdens me is that there are people in churches like ours who believe all of these things about the Bible, but the Bible stays remains a closed book. It's not being read consistently. And as a result of it not being read consistently, we're not feeding ourselves on the truth of God's Word and developing spiritual strength and knowledge and spiritual muscle. And when a challenge comes or temptation comes, we so easily fall apart. Because there's no substance. I mean, we're at the end of the year. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about 2020. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Get a Bible reading plan. I would ask you, how have you done this year? And what's going to be different? Do some things need to be different? Listen, if, if you think that coming here on Sunday morning, sitting in the service, singing some songs, listening to a sermon for a half hour is going to help you develop theological and spiritual muscles that are going to help you handle life and live in a way that honors and pleases God, you are deceiving yourself. It doesn't work. We need to be reading God's Word, meditating on God's Word. We work on memorizing God's Word. We need to be people of God's Word, that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This will affect your parenting. This will affect your marriage. This will affect just the, your whole view of life and your discouragement and depression. It affects how you, how you um, handle problems because you're reading God's Word and applying it to your lives. I cannot, I mean, I'm burdened. Church like us, every one of us would take on a theology test, would say, do you believe that the Word of God gives life? And what would you say? Yes, I believe that. Would you say that God's Word is what we need for, it has everything we need for life and godliness? And we'd say, absolutely, I believe that. Does your personal engagement with God's Word demonstrate that i want to encourage you be a bible reader do you know it and don't just read it study it see things like this i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob these sadducees were theological sharp they were sharp but they missed it because they weren't reading closely second question i would ask is not only do you know the word of god do you know the power of god the Word of God, that this group was confronted because they don't know the Word of God or the power of God. How do we know the power of God? to. I I, I, my prayer is that you know the power of God by experience. And experience in two ways, your salvation and your sanctification. That you have come to the point where you've understood that, that the Bible teaches us that God is a creator and he's a king. That we are his creatures, but we've rebelled against him. And because of our rebellion against the king, what we deserve is judgment. We deserve death and ultimately hell. But we realize, too, that, that, that God in his great grace has given us Jesus, who's a substitute, who gives us new life when we repent and believe the gospel. And if we repent and believe the gospel, God makes us new new creatures in Jesus Christ, that we experience that power and we realize sin's gone, life has come. That what I used to love, I don't love anymore. I mean, I'm still attracted to it and has a temptation, but I've been set free from that. That, that, I've, that, I, that I'm able to stand in a temptation and to be able to battle that well because I've been transformed by this power of the gospel salvation but the power of god in sanctification when you're in a marriage relationship or dealing with your moms and dads dealing with the person on the phone who's calling you from a foreign country to help you solve a problem that you're that what's going on there i'm applying god's truth god help me to be who you want me to be and what do i do in result i put on things like patience and kindness and gentleness that I'm seeing in my life that these things are a growing reality. Why? Because I know the Word of God and I know the power of God. It's my desire for all of us that we would not be like these Sadducees who, who in their theological knowledge that they thought they had things figured out but there was a big gap. That we would shrink this gap by being people who know God's Word and people who know the power of God through salvation and sanctification. And so I call you this morning to examine yourself, to ask yourself those two questions and to objectively wrestle wrestle with, do I really know this? Do I just know it here? Or do I know it experientially? Do I truly know God, His power and His Word? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the grace you give to us in Jesus. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would challenge us, Lord, that we would humbly examine our own hearts, as it's easy to look at the Sadducees and be uh, critical of them because of their lack of knowledge of God's Word and God's power. But God, I pray that you would put the mirror up in front of us to help us to recognize, do we truly know the Word of God? Do we know the power of God? And Lord, that we would be people who would apply ourselves, that we would be people who know God's word, who love your word, who read your word. Lord, help us to be a people then too as well who confess you as our Savior, who surrender ourselves daily, deny ourselves daily, who take up our cross and follow you. And we're watching you grow us, putting on these new characteristics of love and joy and peace and patience, and that we would engage our neighbors in our community with this love. And Lord, as we think about this Christmas season and this whole idea of you coming to dwell with us, Lord, you've come to dwell with us to build a church, to build a church that you describe as your bride. And Lord, as we look to heaven where there is no marriage, we know that there is one marriage, and that is your marriage to your church because you love us. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us to grow in our love for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we conclude this morning, we're going to conclude with a few announcements and and be dismissed. Uh, And um, so, a few announcements we have this morning is there's not a lady's Bible.